the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to start with a quote, as I often do, uh, one that's been hanging around this week in the back of my mind. This one from Canon Vanstone, uh, his book, Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense, which is always at hand. It's the book I love to give to others. I never ask anyone if I've given them a book because a book is a gift that keeps on taking. And if they ask you, if, if you ask them if they've read it, they're put on the spot. So I never ask, but if I give you a book, I will think it's worth reading. And this one certainly is. And this is the quote, and I quote, If God is love, and if the universe is his creation, then for the being of the universe, God is totally expended in precarious endeavor, of which the issue as triumph or as tragedy has passed from his hands. For that issue, God waits upon the response of his creation. He waits as the artist or as the lover waits, having given all. Always for the richness of the creation, God is made poor. For its fullness, God is made empty. His helplessness waits upon the response of the creation. End quote. God waits. God is not just action, pure act, doing. God is about passion, waiting, being done to. In fact, God seems to us to spend rather more time waiting than we would like. Most of time is an eternal waiting for God or so it seems, an eternal waiting on God, serving, and servants wait before they act, and they do what the one on whom they wait, for whom they wait, would have them do. And that's what love is like, too. It is for love of the creation that God becomes a human being. The second person of the Trinity, existent from eternity, steps into time. And not just that, he steps into human form. And not just that, he fills that human form with the soul and mind and spirit of a human being. One who feels and thinks, who wants and wills, who knows suffering and release, sadness and joy, temptation and yet not sin, just like any human could if that human were human as God had made them. And God waits. God the Son waits on the Father to see what the Father wants doing and does it. We humans can't wait. Time is a burden for us. But God the Son enters time to show us how it's done, how to wait, how to act, when to act. To live as one of us in time, however, he must be born and he must die as our creed outlines. As to what Jesus does between his birth and death, of that our creeds say nothing. We turn to scripture then. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus, encountering one of God's creatures, one of his creatures, John, 
encounters resistance, the kind of which Van Stone spoke, the triumph or tragedy that can result from the precarious, the vulnerability which God takes on when he loves, and the tragedy finds its first expression in that resistance. This may be one of the first instances of that resistance in Jesus' career. It will not be the last. Why is Jesus, who, as is said, is tempted but does not sin, why does this sinless one undergo a baptism of repentance? As the Benedictine Andrew Marr of Three Rivers says, and I quote, for John, it was a baptism of repentance from the violent society of his time to prepare for God's winnowing fork in the wrath to come, to prepare for the coming of a violent God with vengeance on his mind. But when Jesus came, he did not bring a winnowing fork. He only brought himself and asked to be baptized. Mar points to Psalm 2, in which the king, the Messiah, is singled out from the nations, furiously raging and rising up in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. Jesus' inundation draws him out of that whole realm of the nations crashing against each other like a storm surge. And in Isaiah 42, which we have heard read, the servant of Yahweh is called out of a violent society to become instead the victim of that violence. Not the victor, the victim, not the Lord and master, again, the servant. A servant who takes no rod of iron to his oppressors, incites no retaliation for the violence he has suffered, but instead calls us all to be overwhelmed by the baptismal waters, the same kind of suffering of being done to. God anointed this man, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were overpowered by the devil, since God was with him. Related to this state of being overpowered or overwhelmed is the anointing of the Spirit. The giving of power, but a kind of power which is not of this world, where any outrage suffered energizes the desire for revenge. Quid pro quo, a visceral reaction, purely bodily. The old vagal nerve, fight versus flight. When fear and anger are used as an incitement, the response is involuntary. There is no freedom here. This, too, is passion being done to, which leads to being done in, which leads to being done for. Action may lead to reaction, not a choice, but no works of conversion will happen here. The lords and masters of our time, the warlords, are masters also of the art of stirring up passion and enslaving the will. Jesus' baptism sets us free, free to love, free to live a life free of fear. It's what all of us want, but more than all of us know how to ask for. Jesus anticipates that by always challenging our expectations whenever he appears. As N.T. Wright writes, John is expecting something or rather someone very different than the one who shows up. It's as if a symphony audience were gathered eagerly at Symphony Center 
anticipating the Sturm und Drang of one of the great late romantic masterpieces that I so love, contemplating the massive forces deployed in the brass and percussion section, when, instead of the famous maestro ready to bend 100 men and women to his will, a solo flute player wanders on stage, maybe with a simple wooden instrument of uncertain origin, a shakuhachi maybe, and launches into the slow and stately measures of gagaku, Japanese court dances of the eighth century. Now, I would certainly love it, but many of the fans are sure to be disappointed. That's the effect Jesus has on whoever might be present today. They're prepared for this God of power and wrath and signs and wonders to come. He gives them signs and wonders, but not like they're expecting. And to some effect, that's the effect Jesus has on us when we truly, really, and truly encounter him as the one who steps in and out of the stream of time, always a stranger in the world that is his from eternity to us and back again. The Spirit, of course, ensures our participation in Christ whenever we encounter him in our lives. But there is always this strangeness there, too. As one who strikes an alien note in today's spiritual marketplace, where signs or wonders are sought all right, but of the kind we know from the flesh, shows of great power are expected, and the main task of Jesus is to take all of us one by one, one on one, who have made a personal commitment to him as Savior, will leave the Lord peace off the table, that's rather difficult, and guarantee that we feel better and better about ourselves. That's the goal. That's why Jesus came to each and every one of us, that we would feel better, ever better about ourselves. That's the gospel, so we're told that he would reward our pursuit of happiness by catching us up in his great quest for the self-same thing which looks identically to what we think and hope happiness is. We'll see about that. We've heard a lot in the news about the Middle East. And in Baghdad, a place about which we have learned a thing or two over the 20 years that some of us have known the vicar of Baghdad, Canon Andrew White, to be baptized is tantamount to receiving a death sentence. If you've followed Canon Andrew White's journey through time, you'll know that he was summoned to Iraq when Saddam Hussein was still in charge. He went to Tariq Aziz on his way to meet the Prime Minister of Israel and Yasser Arafat on the way in the hope that he would bring them all together and Aziz, who was a Christian, said to him, Andrew, you have to tell them that we're not, uh, we're not terrorists, we're revolutionaries. And Andrew said to him, Tariq, I know that, but they know you've done this thing, that's 9-11, and they're very angry about it, and they're coming to get you. Well, Andrew White stayed through the whole process of the reconstitution of Iraq, and stayed on because he had fallen so much in love with the people, didn't go back to his beautiful haunt of Coventry Cathedral where he was a canon, treated with honor, had a magnificent library and a study in that magnificent building. He stayed in Baghdad with a community of Christians there who had been there 
for 2,000 years, more or less. And every Sunday when there was a baptism, men and women would come forward. Often within a week, the men at least would have been killed. And yet the coming forward continued and continued. I never knew a place, he said, of St. George's Baghdad, where there was greater joy over baptism. This is surely love's triumph. The creation facing a very uncertain future chooses, decides for Jesus, decides for God's love, chooses to make a declaration of dependence, if you like, for the saking the pursuit of such trivial happiness as this world provides for the joy and the peace that this world cannot provide and never will. Now, we might be tempted to deduce from this little um, example I've given that some baptisms, are, some, baptisms some, excuse me, some baptisms are worth more than others because the cost is greater. And we'll marvel at the witness of those Iraqis. And we'll take it further and think, well, I guess God waits for us to put in enough time to really earn our salvation. And the higher the price we pay and the harder we work, the happier he is to grant it. Not so. That's how the world thinks. And how a big chunk of the church reverts to thinking again and again and again. It's the Christian default. As the church has tried to teach and recover and continues to do so, salvation is a gift, free and clear. A gift to the unloving and the unlovely, whom God will love and loving make lovely. That's Luther. Bringing into being by that love what we always were, what we already are, if we but knew it and had the freedom to want it. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Let us be clear then about the choices we face as far as we know them. Do any of us who have stepped forward for baptism or bring their children for baptism, as will happen today, know what price we may pay for that baptism? We do not, but we make that step regardless in the freedom that the Holy Spirit has given us. We look past the consequences, clear-eyed, tender in heart and firm in faith. We look to Jesus, King Jesus, as the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him gave up his life so that we might live again with him, a real life. Let us celebrate then today the triumph, the triumph of one more soul, chosen and choosing, coming into the covenant of God's eternal love. Amen.